She's a business mogul. Number one. And wellness expert. How can I help? And now Chantel Ray and her amazing guests are here to guide you on your wellness journey. Time to level up. Welcome to the Waste Away Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. And I have Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero. And we are talking about calorie restriction, intermittent fasting, blood glucose monitors, digestive system, and so much more. They've written an amazing book called Mastering Diabetes. And we are in for a real treat today. So welcome, guys. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here today with you, Chantal. Yeah, really excited. It's going to be fun. Yes. So let's talk about intermittent fasting to start. So I want to, I want to kind of talk about things both on two different levels, one for people who don't have diabetes or, or maybe are, you know, pre-diabetic and then people who actually have diabetes. Do you know what I'm saying? So that both people listening can go, I mean, I know plenty of people who have diabetes, and but I don't have it. So we want to appeal to both people. So what is your kind of, for intermittent fasting, what kind of tips do you give to people uh, who maybe do have diabetes? Okay, so this is a good question because uh, intermittent fasting is a incredibly powerful technique that people both with diabetes and without diabetes can use to significantly improve their metabolic health and actually uh, reduce their overall chronic disease risk. So, uh, if we go backwards in time, um, back in 2007 to 2012, um, I did a PhD in nutritional biochemistry at UC Berkeley. And while I was there, I was given the task of trying to investigate everything related to the development of insulin resistance and how to induce insulin resistance in laboratory animals and how to actually rescue insulin sensitivity or effectively how to reverse insulin resistance. And so we had combed through thousands of, of, uh, scientific papers on how to turn on insulin resistance and how to turn it off. And what we found over the course of time was that intermittent fasting and calorie restriction kept on showing up over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the reason was because intermittent fasting is such a powerful, powerful metabolic program that you can create inside of your own body simply by manipulating the timing of your food intake and the effects on, on people who have blood glucose irregularities are bonkers. It's really cool. So for people who are living with diabetes, diabetes is sort of classically characterized by having what's called a high A1C value. Your A1C is basically a, a measurement of your average blood glucose over a three month period. And you, what you're looking for is an A1C value that is 5.7% or below. Okay. So if you go to the doctor and you get a blood test and they measure your A1C value and you're below 5.7, fantastic. You're in the non-diabetic state. If your A1C comes back between 5.7 and 6.4%, then that means that you have prediabetes. And if your A1C comes back at 6.5% or higher, then that means that you have type two diabetes. So that's the, the sort of like most important test that most doctors use to, to diagnose prediabetes or type two. So let's say, well, and been- I want you to talk about one more thing, because on the cover of your book, which I, I know what it is, but I'd like you to tell people, you say how you guys can help reverse insulin resistance permanently 
in type 1, type 1.5, and type 2 prediabetes and gestational diabetes. I think people know what type 1 and type 2 diabetes is, but type 1.5 is a new term now. So explain what that is. Okay, that's great. So yeah, you're right. There's there's a lot of different flavors of diabetes and they've been kind of getting more complicated over the course of time. Uh, historically, people kind of, just like you said, they know that there's two different types. There's type one and there's type two, right? Type one and, and people's association is like, oh, type one is what happens to kids and type two is what happens to adults. It's just that simple, but it's, it's way more nuanced than that. Um, type one and type 1.5 diabetes are both considered autoimmune conditions. Autoimmune basically means your own immune system has created a, uh, has launched an attack on the insulin producing beta cells inside of your own pancreas and um, has targeted them for destruction. And as a result of that, you go from having normal pancreatic function, AKA normal insulin production to very close to zero insulin production. The question is what age did you develop it and what speed is it progressing at? Okay, so in people who are living with type one diabetes, uh, generally speaking, they're under the age of 30 years old. They develop this autoimmune reaction due to a number of different reasons. But as a result of developing it, they go from having normal insulin production to as close to zero insulin production within 12 to 18 months. So it's a, it's a rapid decline in insulin production. Um, people with type 1.5 diabetes are generally older than 30 years old. And their decline in insulin production can take a lot longer. So rather than only taking 12 to 18 months, it could take two years. It could take five years. It could take 10 years. It may never happen. So you can think of the distinction between the two of them is that type one diabetes is a rapidly progressing autoimmune condition, which leads you towards basically zero insulin production. And type 1.5 is a adult onset slow progressing version of type one diabetes that affects people over the age of 30. Does that make sense? Mm, such a good explanation. <clears throat> so where have you seen that intermittent fasting? What it, let's say someone is diabetic. They are, they are truly type one or type 1.5 diabetes. What would you say would be a intermittent fasting schedule that they could do that would still be safe for them. Okay. So if we're looking at type one or 1.5s and trying yes. to figure out what we do. Okay. So if you're living with type one or 1.5 diabetes, or, you know, somebody is who is the most important distinction between those autoimmune versions of diabetes and the non autoimmune versions of diabetes or pre-diabetes type two and gestational is that in type one and 1.5, uh, those patients need to have to must inject insulin. And the reason again, is because your own immune system has compromised your immune, uh, I'm sorry, your insulin producing capability. And when your insulin producing capability goes down, it causes a system wide global dysfunction. And if you do not inject insulin to uh, supplement the food that you are eating, you are setting yourself up for a very, very dangerous uh, scenario later in life. Okay. So insulin dependent diabetes type one and 1.5, um, because you're insulin dependent, there's a whole, uh, there's, there's like a set of rules associated with how long you can intermittent fast for, because if you're responsible for, for, for injecting your own insulin use, 
you're a human being. You're going to make mistakes. Sometimes you're going to inject the right amount. Sometimes you're going to inject just a little bit more than you need. Sometimes you're going to inject just a little bit less than you need. You're not a computer. You're not a robot. You're going to make mistakes all along the way. It's going to happen, right? And so when you add intermittent fasting and or calorie restriction into your daily life, it changes the amount of insulin you have to give yourself. And your insulin requirements are likely to go down and they're likely to go, go down significantly. And what the research shows and what sort of doctors report back to uh, many of their patients is that anything in excess of 24 hours can present some pretty serious complications down the road. And, and part of the reason for that is because within the first 24 hours of, of intermittent fasting is when your muscles and liver become pretty reliant on glycogen metabolism. So glycogen is basically a stored form of glucose inside of your liver and muscles. And over the course of the first 24 hours, your glycogen status goes from being relatively full if you, if you, if it was full to begin with, and it can go, it can get pretty darn depleted. So by the end of 24 hours, you, you don't really have that much glycogen left in your liver or in your muscles. So you can think of it as basically a fuel supply that will help keep you energetic and active for the first 24 hours. But then at that 24 hour marker and beyond that's when you're going to sort of switch over into burning more fat, which is generally speaking a good thing because people want to burn fat. There's no question about it. But the transition from glycogen metabolism to fatty acid oxidation, at that point, um, your insulin requirements are going to change and insulin dynamics are going to change significantly. So what happens is that at that 24-hour marker, if you go beyond that 24-hour marker, then if you are injecting the wrong amount of insulin, either too much or too little, you can drive yourself into either very high blood glucose or very low blood glucose. And both of those are very dangerous scenarios. So point being is that if you are insulin dependent, the first 24 hours is, is the sort of like uh, area of opportunity, but then beyond 24 hours, we don't recommend um, proceeding beyond that point because you could get into a dangerous scenario with especially low blood glucose that can become life-threatening for sure. So let's talk about someone who maybe has pre-diabetes. So for me personally, just so you know, when I would take my blood sugar and I would prick my finger in the morning before I started doing intermittent fasting, I was ranging between 102 and 109 regularly because I just always wanted to see what my blood sugar was. And that's what I was doing. Now that I started doing intermittent fasting, when I wake up, my blood sugar is anywhere between 80 and 90. Sometimes it's 70. It just, you know, obviously depends, but it's always lower than a hundred. Um, and so I feel like, you know, intermittent fasting has really helped me personally, um, because I was borderline, you know, pre-diabetic before I started doing fasting. So talk about what you've seen in patients and how fasting has helped with that. For sure. Um, I'm glad, first of all, I'm glad to hear that when you adopt an intermittent fasting regimen, that your fasting blood glucose drop, that's actually very uh, predictable. We see that in a lot of our clients as well. And the research shows the exact same thing. So hats off to you. You recognize that there was a problem, you fixed the problem, and now you don't have to worry about diabetes. That's actually what we were hoping. Uh, lots of people can also, you know, initiate for themselves. Um, so as far as what's actually happening under the surface, uh, when you perform an intermittent fast, effectively what you're doing is you are <clears throat> choosing a period of time in, um, usually greater than 16 to 18 hours. So let's call it like 
18 to 24 hours or 18 to 36 hours or 18 to 48 hours, again, depending on the type of diabetes that you have. But let's just say that uh, an intermittent fast is somewhere between 18 to 24 hours, just to keep things nice and simple. Um, during that 18 to 24 hour period, when you're not consuming any calories from the outside world, you're only having water or non-caloric beverages. Um, what ends up happening is that tissues basically go into a state of metabolism in which they cannot gain energy from the outside world. So if you are a liver cell and you are used to seeing a significant uh, concentration of glucose in the blood, or you're seeing a significant concentration of amino acids or fatty acids in the blood, and you uptake that and use that for energy. And when you're in an intermittent fasted state, the, the concentrations of all of those fuels are very low. So as a result of that, you as a liver cell are like, wait a minute, I'm not really getting fuel from the outside world. There's no gas station. That's just giving me the nutrients that I normally operate on. Therefore, I have to find my own source of energy. Oh, it turns out that I actually have my own sources of energy on board. So again, you got glycogen because liver cells can make glycogen, which is a stored form of glucose and that they can use the glucose and burn it for ATP and actually make energy, which is great. In addition to that, they also store fatty acids in small quantities. So they can use those fatty acids and they can send them to the mitochondria and they can burn it for ATP. And that's a good thing. Okay. If need be, they can also oxidize amino acids, which is the building blocks of protein, but your liver cells do not want to do that. Your muscle cells do not want to do that. It is a very last resort for them. So in general, glucose and fatty acids become the two primary fuel sources. So what ends up happening is that cells in your liver have to deplete their own internal fuel tanks first, because that's the only place that they can find fuel. So your liver is performing, your, your liver is doing that. Your pancreas is also doing the same thing. Your muscle tissue is also doing the same thing. Every single tissue inside of your body is basically going internal and trying to find its own storage tanks and then using those storage tanks to actually fuel themselves and continue to operate. And the nice thing is that when you do that, it, you can kind of think of it as sort of like a, it's like a cellular recycling program, right? The, the cells have basically accumulated all this stuff that, you know, they have all these closets and they're sort of like, okay, glucose, you go over here, fatty acids, you go over here, you know, excess amino acids, you go over here. And what ends up happening is that when you go into an intermittent fasted state, all that stuff has to come out and all that stuff has to basically be oxidized and used for ATP. And that's a good thing because it's a sort of way of, of cleaning up the cellular environment. And as a result of that, the cells become healthier. They live for a longer period of time. And then the next time you go and try and put food into your mouth, the nutrients that become available are now all of a sudden readily available to get put into your liver and your muscle and other tissues. So think of it as like a house, a housekeeping function. It's a recycling program. It's a housekeeping function. It's whatever you want to call it. And that enables you to basically clear out the excess accumulated fuel that has, a, that, has, um, that has been present for some period of time. And as a result of that, your glu the glucose value inside of your blood can also drop. Okay. So the last thing I'll say here about why does your glucose drop? It's because the, the amount of glucose inside of your blood at any given moment in time is a balance between what you're putting into your mouth, AKA what you're eating, okay? How much energy you're utilizing, AKA how much energy you're burning, okay? And then the third thing is how much glucose your liver is producing because your, your, your liver is going to produce glucose and put it inside of your blood. So there's multiple different ways to sort of like regulate your blood glucose. When you perform an intermittent fast, what you do is your liver calms down. Your liver just doesn't manufacture as much glucose and put it into your blood because there's no need for it anymore. 
So your liver basically says, oh, okay, cool. I'm, I have to burn this glucose. I'm not just going to put it into the blood because if I put it in the blood, I'm losing it and I don't want to lose it. So as a result of that, your liver kind of holds on to it and it slows down the amount that it's putting in your blood. That's a good thing that leads that brings your blood glucose down. Okay. You're not eating any food and therefore the amount of glucose getting into your blood from your mouth goes down as well. So the combination of the two of those ends up decreasing your glucose value during a fast. And that glucose value, if you, if you continue to do an intermittent fast repeatedly, that glucose value can stay down over the course of time. And that's a good thing because that'll keep your fasting glucose down and your post-meal blood glucose down for many days, weeks, or months. Does that make sense? Yes. Ladies, are you feeling completely stressed and completely overwhelmed by life right now? Well, join the club. I'm feeling that way too. But if you're having trouble just feeling like you can't lose weight, the scale's not moving, and if any of this sounds like you, I want to just ask you about your magnesium because magnesium is involved in so many different processes in the body and some of the things that it does, it really helps calm your nervous system so you can feel happy and relaxed. It helps your blood sugar, it helps your blood pressure, and it actually helps with burning fat. It also is involved in your hormones. So like if you're struggling with PMS or menopause symptoms, that is something you want to look at too. And the stats are out. There's different stats that say that up to 80% of women aren't getting enough magnesium. So if you're stressed, you actually need more magnesium and then you go into this vicious cycle. So that's why I'm excited to talk to you about by optimizers they have created an incredible formula called magnesium breakthrough i'm taking it every night it's so funny even my husband's like babe can i have some of that magnesium breakthrough by by optimizers i'm like yes babe and i just pass it over to him and so this month they're including free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders go to magbreakthrough.com slash waste away that's magbreakthrough.com slash waste away and and enter the code waste away for an additional 10% off. I do want to talk for you to talk a little bit about the Dawn phenomenon, um, because I know that we've had several people who have been listening and we have had people say that, you know, between like, you know, 2 a.m. or and 6 a.m., even if they don't have like they have perfectly normal blood glucose levels all throughout the day. But during that 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., their blood sugar goes up. And, you know, people have talked about the dawn phenomenon. Can you talk about that for a minute? I mean, it's great to hear you asking about that question. It's certainly something that, so Cyrus and I are both living with type 1 diabetes. And so the dawn phenomenon is definitely something that all type 1s deal with. And one of the things that we do is we are taught to inject about a half a unit or a unit to simply address the Dom phenomenon, which is essentially your body is getting you ready for the day. So your liver will put some glucose into your bloodstream, getting you ready to go and and go and take care of the day and be active and, and live your life and think clearly and move your body. And so it's totally normal. It's natural human physiology and it's absolutely okay. I will say that as a person living with type one diabetes, you know, Cyrus and I both, we are amazing test subjects around this whole topic of insulin sensitivity. What things can you do to improve or even reduce your insulin sensitivity? What things make you more insulin resistant? Because we have three important pieces of data. We're, we're required to inject insulin. We consistently monitor our blood glucose levels. 
and we calculate the amount of carbohydrate energy that we're consuming so we know how much insulin to inject. So these are three important data points that most people don't have, right? Chantal, you don't know how much insulin your pancreas is secreting at any given point of the day. It'd be very challenging for you to test that. That actually be an amazing invention. You know, the CGMs, those are becoming so popular. The device that will be able to measure your insulin levels all throughout the day is going to be incredibly valuable. But um, the Don phenomenon, it, it's normal and it, it's okay. And what I have actually found personally is that there's an amazing medicinal plant called amla berries, okay? Also known as Indian gooseberries. And I have found that when I consistently consume amla, and I consume it as a tea, it's called amla green. And, and, and to be transparent, Cyrus and I both, we created this product um, after we did research on the power of amla berries. When I consistently consume amla berries, I need less insulin to treat the DOM phenomenon every morning. It is helping me become more insulin sensitive in that critical time. And we find that this, this it's, it's, a, it's literally the most antioxidant rich whole food on the entire planet. Okay. Amla berries. Mm. And so you can consume it um, as a tea. It's like it could, most people consume it in a powder form and it's incredibly powerful. So if you want to, if somebody's listening to this and they're seeing that their blood goes a little bit higher between two and 6 a.m., I would encourage them to experiment with AMLA and see if that reduces that number a little bit. But most importantly is, this is something we're definitely going to talk about when we get into CGMs here, um, but is looking at the bigger picture, right? What is your overall A1C? You know, what are your blood glucose readings throughout the day and not getting too fixated on small elevations at almost any point of the day. It's really, let's take a look at the bigger picture, which is really important for especially people not living with diabetes. Well, that that brings me to the next question. Is blood sugar monitoring without diabetes worthwhile? Because right now there's a few companies out there that are working really hard to get every person with those implantable blood sugar monitoring devices, which we call the continuous glucose monitoring systems or CGMs, and they are running rampant. I personally have used it myself. I don't use it now, but I did want to do an experiment on it. And I did it. I actually did it for about 60 days just to see what would do it. So what's your opinion on this? So I'll tell you again, as a person living with type one diabetes, I have worn a Dexcom G6 for many, many years now. And it is an incredibly valuable tool for me uh, in managing my blood glucose levels, figuring out the insulin to take, making sure if, if I'm going low overnight or high overnight, it can beep at me. It can alert family members. It's an incredible tool. Now at Mastering Diabetes, we have the position that using a CGM, if you're not living with diabetes, can become confusing. It can make you become scared of eating whole carbohydrate-rich foods, things like apples and pears and bananas and potatoes, if you don't have enough education and context as to why you might be seeing elevated readings on your CGM. So you're gonna use this device, it's this one point that you're looking at, you're just focusing on blood glucose, that's all the meter is telling you, and you're gonna try and make every decision you can in order to just fix that one number and you might be missing the larger picture here, which is really the entire ethos of this book, Mastering Diabetes. And it's entirely a really a new message we're bringing to the diabetes community, which is that if you want to 
lower your blood glucose in the short term and the long term. If you want to maximize your insulin sensitivity now and into the long term, you have to actually focus on the, your dietary fat intake and not just focus on your blood glucose readings in the short term. And this can be very confusing for people because this is predominant belief out there that look, I follow my meter or now it's like, I follow my CGM. When I have a potato, I see my blood glucose spike. It goes to 160, it goes to 170. Potatoes must be bad. Potatoes are bad for me. If I'd stand if I have a banana. So I'm not gonna eat those foods, which is unfortunately misleading and not, it's skipping an important step of what made your body not able to metabolize the potato or the banana properly and have a healthy blood glucose elevation and then come back down into a normal range. And what we're talking about in this book is the real, the cause is the consumption of excess dietary fat. And that is why we're not a huge fan of CGMs for people not living with diabetes is because it doesn't give everybody the entire picture. Well, let's talk about calories for just a second. And I feel like people are, this is such a divided topic. You know, people are just either on one side or the other, but I want to talk about what your opinion on calorie restriction is and how you can actually take on less calories or take on more calories and how that affects your weight loss. Okay, this is one of my favorite subjects of all time. Go ahead. No, Cyrus and I both love this. I'm going to say a couple of things and then I'll throw it back to Cyrus. Okay. But um, calorie density, okay, is both, Cyrus and I are both very passionate about this topic. And it really is, again, at the cornerstone of what we're teaching here at Mastering Diabetes. Because again, most people who are thinking about managing their blood glucose levels, managing their insulin levels, I don't want my insulin to spike, right? They believe that, you know, the predominant belief is avoid carbohydrate-rich foods, okay? Like avoid potatoes, avoid bananas, avoid quinoa, avoid beans. And this is an, an overall mistake, particularly because most people confuse processed carbohydrates for whole carbohydrates, okay? And whole carbohydrates actually have what is in a, is level an appropriate calorie density. And there's been a ton of research on this topic by Barbara Rolls from Penn State University, she wrote a book called Volumetric on, Volumetrics on this topic. And basically, you have to understand that when you eat whole carbohydrate-rich foods, okay, it's so much water and fiber in these foods that the overall calorie density comes down into an appropriate range, and you actually get to eat more food by weight in order to lose weight, more volume. You get, the food, your plate is actually larger, and it's because water plus fiber is what's filling you up and it's water plus fiber, which provides bulk, which helps you feel satiated. So, you know, I think when you say the phrase like calorie restriction, that can mean a lot, that can be different things to different people. Some people might think that as, oh, well, calorie restriction means I'm gonna have to starve myself. I'm gonna be hungry all the time. And we don't think about it like that a lot. I'll throw it over to Sire for some of the research on this topic, but um, we think of uh, calorie restriction happening as a byproduct of eating when you're hungry until you're satisfied of whole carbohydrate rich foods and, and just whole plant foods in general. So lots of greens and non-starchy vegetables, amazing sauces. You're not feeling deprived, but you're as a, as a byproduct, actually eating in, in a, you know, you're actually doing calorie restriction without even knowing you're doing it. Mm, got it. 
Yeah. The, yeah. He hit on the head. Okay. So <clears throat> a simple way to think about this is that, um, the amount of, okay, your ability to gain or lose weight over the course of time um, is strictly dependent on the total, on your calorie balance. Okay. So in other words, many people like to believe that weight loss is a pretty complicated topic and that there's, there's, you know, 25, 30, 50 different ways to lose weight. And there's 25, 30, 50 different ways to gain weight. And um, there's definitely many things to take into consideration when you're trying to lose weight or trying to gain weight, but um, all of weight loss in particular, and all of weight gain, actually both of them are dependent upon your energy balance. In other words, if you are trying to lose weight, there is only one master thing that you have to have in order to lose weight. And that one master thing is that you have to be uh, consuming less calories than you're burning. Okay. In other words, the number of calories in has to be less than the number of calories out. And, um, this is biology that was like developed hundreds, you know, more than a hundred years ago. And there have been many research groups who have tried to like disprove this. They're like, no, it's gotta be more complicated. It's gotta be more complicated. And when you really boil it down to it, calories in versus calories out is absolutely the only way to either lose weight or gain weight period end of story. Okay. So if you're trying to lose weight, let's say you say to yourself, all right, cool. I have to lose 20 pounds. What that would mean is you say, okay, I'm going to have to like find a strategy by which I'm going to restrict my calorie intake so that my calories in is less than my calories out. And then if I maintain that over the course of time, then I'm going to lose weight. Okay. So how are you going to eat less calories and how are you going to make sure that you're in a negative calorie balance? Well, there's a lot of things you can do. Number one, you can restrict your calorie intake. You can basically eat smaller portions right? Number two, you can perform an intermittent fast and you can basically be like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go 18 to 24 hours without eating food. And I'm going to do that on a daily or weekly basis. And that's going to be a way for me to limit my calorie intake. Number three, maybe I want to not change my calorie intake, but actually go to the gym and exercise more. So therefore I'm not changing my calories in, but I'm increasing my calories out. And as a result of that, I go into a negative energy balance. Okay. There's many different ways you can slice it, but the point is that you have to have a gap. The gap must exist in order to lose weight, period, end of story. There's no other way to do it. So one of the powers of eating a plant-based diet is that you can create a gap without trying to create a gap. And this is the true power of eating a plant-based diet that is high in fiber and high in water and high in micronutrients because it enables you to actually create an energy uh, balance in it to, to, sorry, to create an energy gap that works in your favor. So imagine I had a plate of food in front of me and the plate of food had 500 calories that was from chicken and eggs and, um, dairy products. Okay. So just visualize what that plate would look like. I have a certain amount of chicken. I got a certain amount of cheese and I have a certain amount of fish on that plate. Okay. Then I have another plate right next to it that also has the same number of calories, it has 500 calories, but this time it's 500 calories of beans and potatoes and fruit. Okay. So visualize what that plate would look like. If you took the two of those plates and you tried to figure out which plate actually had more, more, which, which plate weighed more, which one of those two plates do you think would actually weigh more on a scale? What's your guess? 
I would say the one that wasn't the the vegetables and all that. The the vegetables would weigh more. Like all that stuff would weigh more. Yeah, right, right, right. So, so I think I know there's like when I first learned this concept, I was like, oh wait a minute, the chicken and the cheese and the fish they're going to weigh more, no question. They're denser foods, mm-hmm. and therefore they're going to actually weigh more on the scale. But it's the exact opposite, just like you said. The chicken and the cheese and the fish weighs less than the food that's that that came from the plant based world. Okay, so the vegetables, the beans, the legumes, um, the potatoes, the fruits, those that those foods actually weigh significantly more. And the reason for that is because those foods contain more water. Okay, so this is actually a very, very important concept. Those those foods contain more water. They are larger in volume. They're larger in size. The plate is actually has more stuff on it. And as a result of that, when you try and put that food into your mouth, and it goes down your esophagus and into your stomach and into your small intestine, there's going to be a neurological signal or multiple neurological signals sent from your digestive system right back to your brain that says, slow down, don't eat so much. There's a lot of stuff inside of my digestive system. This is getting uncomfortable. And so as a result of that, you're able to to eat that plate of food and there's a natural feedback mechanism that goes back to your brain that says, slow, slow, slow down. And it makes it hard to eat that plate of 500 calories because the volume, the amount of stuff that actually goes in the digestive system is kind of large. Versus if you go eat the the plate that has the chicken and the cheese and the fish on it, okay, you're going to take less bites. It it occupies less three-dimensional space. And as a result of that, you're likely to, to eat those foods and they're going to go into your digestive system. You will also get a signal up to your brain that says, hey, slow down, but it'll happen later. And it, and it won't happen as quickly. And as a result of that, it's actually going to be easier to eat that plate of chicken and cheese and fish than it is to eat the plate of vegetables and the pl- and with beans and, and fruits on it. Okay. So as a result of doing that, if you opt for foods that come more from the plant-based world, because these foods have a larger volume, they have more fiber, they have more water, they take up more space. That means that you get fuller on them quicker and you end up eating less calories without even knowing that you're eating less calories. And that puts you into a negative calorie balance without even trying. I want to talk to you guys today about brain fog and difficulty focusing. It seems like everybody right now is having trouble recalling names and dates and where you left things. So if that's you, I've got some good news for you. Newtopia, which is powered by Bioptimizer, has created this new product called Collagenius. It actually has collagen, cocoa, cacao, and four different kinds of mushrooms. And this really helps fight brain fog. So I've tried it. I really like it. It's actually sweetened with stevia. And so it kind of tastes like a rich chocolate elixir. And you just literally make it with water or any kind of dairy-free milk. Or if you like regular milk, you could do that. And if you want, you can actually mix it with your morning coffee. And so it's kind of like a mood-boosting mocha. And there's no risk. Like if you don't like it, it's a 365-day full money-back guarantee. So go to newtopia.com slash genius and use Wasteaway10 during the checkout. And I liked what you just said, because honestly, we... 
we have a Facebook group um, for intermittent fasting. And inevitably, we have all these different people and they say questions like this. They're like, I'm doing, and then they tell their whole regime, right? Like, I'm doing a 16, eight, you know, or I'm doing, I'm only eating in a six hour window, or I'm only eating in a four hour window. I've tried this, I've tried that, and I'm not losing weight. Does anyone want to, you know, try to answer why? And what I'm hearing you say is all of the different things that you're, you're saying to people is the master thing is you're consuming more calories and more food than more calories than you're burning out. And whether you do that in a a six hour window or an eight hour window or however you want to do it, the nice thing is with intermittent fasting, you tend to eat, you know, you're not, you know, snacking and bringing that insulin back up and, and all of that, but you still could be with what you're eating. If you're eating all this stuff that has a lot, a lot of calories, you can be heavier than you want to be. Would I be right in saying what what you're saying? Yeah, exactly right. So here's a funny way to think about it. Now, as you were talking, I was like, okay, let's, let's break it down into two different types of uh, two different regimes. Um, If all three of us decided that we wanted to perform an intermittent fast for the next 18 hours, all three of us would be equal in the sense that all of us are going to consume zero calories for 18 hours. Mm -hmm. So we're like, it's an equalizer because none of us is consuming calories and we're basically cut off from the outside world. Okay, great. But if we all sat down to eat food on a plate and one of us ate meat, the other one ate uh, dairy products and the third person ate fruits, okay? The number, of, and then we ate until we were full, the number of calories that each one of us would take in is different, okay? The people who are eating the meat and the dairy products are likely to take in significantly more calories than the person who's eating fruit. And the reason again, is because the fruit contains a lot of water and it contains a lot of fiber. And what Barbara Rolls's research and many other researchers have demonstrated is that the number one signal for your digestive system to tell your brain to slow down and eating is called bulk. Bulk equals fiber plus water. So foods that have more fiber and water together will fill you up faster than foods that have less water and less fiber. Okay. So if you literally just put on, imagine you're wearing a fake pair of goggles and everywhere you go, you are just literally hunting for fiber and water. That's all you're looking for. Okay. Where would you find it? You go to the grocery store and you're like, all right, cool. I got these fiber and water glasses. I got these bulk glasses on. What am I going to find? Right. If you're looking for fiber and water, you're going to gravitate towards the produce section. You're going to pick up fruits and vegetables and legumes and starchy vegetables and whole grains and mushrooms and herbs and spices. That stuff has the fiber and water. That stuff is going to actually fill you up much faster than if you were to go eat the animal-based foods. And as a result of that, you're going to take on less calories. And as a result of that, you're actually going to end up losing weight without even trying. Okay. So now let's balance that because, you know, obviously, you know, one of the things that is important is getting your blood sugar too high. And then, you know, people say, well, once it starts crashing, once it starts going down, then even though you may not be quote hungry, you have the want 
to eat. Like you want to eat because the blood sugar is starting to go down. So you want to eat. So if someone said, okay, well, right now I'm going to eat a couple bananas and I'm going to have some pineapple and some mango. And, you know, I'm eating all this high sugar fruit, which has a ton of fiber. It has a ton of water, but now my, I've jacked my blood sugar. Let's say I don't have diabetes, but I, and they are eating enough fruit that their blood sugar is now, I don't know, 180, 190. As it starts coming down, what would you say to someone that says, now I'm feeling like my when my blood sugar starts going down, I feel like I want to eat again. What would you respond to that? Okay. So there's there's actually a, a couple of things to pay attention to here. Um, you went, so fruit we, we don't like to use the word sugar when we're talking about fruit. And the reason for that is because from a biological perspective, yes, sugar is actually the molecule, the, the collection of molecules that give it a sweet flavor. But when people talk about sugar, what we're actually talking about is, is not a biological substance. It's literally white table sugar and high fructose corn syrup. Okay. So people in our, in our language, when we're like, oh, blah, 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 has a lot of sugar in it. That coffee has a lot of sugar in it. That donut has a lot of sugar in it. We're not talking about biological sugars. We're literally talking about white crystallized table sugar and high fructose corn syrup that was put into that food. And we're not trying to eat that. So as a result of that, when we talk about the stuff that you find in fruit, we refer to it as mainly glucose. It's carbohydrate energy that metabolizes to glucose and fructose. And both of those are fuels that come from the natural world. Okay. So it is a true statement that when you're eating fruits, you're getting a decent amount of glucose and you're getting a decent amount of fructose. And I also don't want people to freak out that fructose is bad for you because if it comes from the natural world, it is a natural whole form of fructose and it's totally normal. It's when it's high fructose corn syrup or refined fructose that it becomes very problematic. Okay. So that's the first clarification. The, the second thing I would say here is that we are not recommending that you or anyone else consumes a lot of fruit to make their blood glucose go up to 180 or 200. That isn't, that is not what we're trying to establish. What we are educating people about is that if you were to consume carbohydrate rich foods like fruits and starchy vegetables and legumes and whole grains, and you do it in a low fat environment, then you'll be able to eat a lot of those foods and your blood glucose will not go very high. It'll go to like 130, maybe 140 at the most, it'll come right back down, okay? What the, the real problem is that most people in the world are living in an insulin resistant state and they don't even know it. So the reason they are living in an insulin resistant state is because like Robbie said earlier, you're consuming a significantly a diet that contains a significant amount of dietary fat and dietary fat has been shown in the research literally for a hundred years over and over and over again. The more dietary fat you consume, the more insulin resistant you become. Your liver becomes insulin resistant and your muscle becomes insulin resistant. So as a result of that, if you're already eating a high fat diet and then you develop insulin resistance, again, you may not even know it. In that scenario, in that metabolic state, you then try and consume a significant amount of fruit or potatoes. Good luck. Your glucose is going to go through the roof. You're going to hit a 180, a 200, a 250, and it's not going to look good. It's not going to feel good. And then you're going to get, again, do what Robbie said earlier. You're going to point a finger at a banana and point a finger at the potato and say, bad potato. Yeah, I shouldn't have eaten you. You're the reason my glucose went up. 
Okay. When in reality, the potato was implicated in that process, but the real reason your glucose went up was because of everything that you ate before that potato. Okay. So the, the, the only way to increase your carbohydrate consumption and to increase the amount of calories that you're getting from carbohydrate rich foods without your blood glucose doing weird things is to first drop your fat intake. Your fat intake needs to, has to, must be less than 15% of total calories. That's the sweet spot. So if you can get your total fat intake between 10 and 15% of total calories, and you can hold that constant for like seven days in a row or 14 days or even more, then in, in that scenario, you can then start to increase the amount of carbohydrate material that you're eating because your carbohydrate tolerance has gone up. So if you are reducing your fat intake and then you start to eat a carbohydrate rich diet, then as a result of that, your glucose is going to do very normal things. It's going to go up a little bit after you eat. It's going to come right back down. You can have a much more normal blood glucose variation. The scenario that you were describing is an absolutely real scenario, which is that you're living in an insulin resistant state. You eat a plate of fruit, your blood glucose goes to 180 and you don't feel good as a result of that. You might get thirsty. You might get disoriented. And then over the course of the next few hours, your blood glucose comes back down. But as your blood glucose is coming back down, all of a sudden this like feeling of like, oh my God, I'm so hungry. Your brain goes a little crazy. Now I need to eat more food. And it creates this sort of like, uh, sort of like feeding frenzy. And a lot of it is driven by the fact that your blood glucose is going up and down and up and down and up and down multiple times per day. But that is a symptom of the insulin resistant state. So if you've been enjoying the show, please give us a review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you're listening to. Take a screenshot of it and email it to questions at chantalrayway.com. The first 15 people who do that will get an amazing free gift. You will get an exclusive interview of the Thin Eaters and what they do to stay thin and make sure they stay in trim top shape. Go to Apple Podcasts, take a snapshot of it, email it to questions at chantalrayway.com and I'll send you your gift. And if you don't feel like making the review and you want to pay $79 to get this video, it is well worth it. Just go to chantalrayway.com and download it and buy it. Mm. I love what you said about the fat. I personally, for me, my biggest problem, if you had to say, what, what does Chantel need to fix is I eat too much fat and period the end. Like I already know, like this is an area that I really need to work on because you don't even like for me, I'll, and, and it's very healthy fats that I'm eating, but I'm still eating too much of them, whether it's, uh, you know, too many almonds or too many pistachios or too much avocado. It's not like I'm eating like really, really bad, bad fats, but I am still overdoing it. And I think people don't realize that they are overdoing it on the fats, which I think is, is something that, um, you know, then when they combine it with the carbohydrates, you know, then it's, you know, game over, you're going to gain weight. You you absolutely nailed it. I have a hundred percent. And part of the reason it's easy to eat so much of those higher fat foods goes back to the calorie density point that Cyrus was bringing home earlier. So nuts and seeds are one of the most calorie dense foods on the planet, and then oil being the most calorie dense. So it's a very, it takes a very small amount of space in your stomach and provides you with a lot of calories. And then remember, so it's very little water in those foods and a small amount of fiber and it's just very, very easy to overeat. So it's 
it's great that you're very aware of that. Most people have no idea. I want to tell you that you guys have to have to go to their website, which is masteringdiabetes.org. And the recipes that they have on there, they have a kale potato salad, a creamy broccoli soup that just look amazing and some plant-based cookies that look amazing as well. Tell us what your favorite recipe that you have on the site that they definitely need to check out. What's your favorite? Uh, my personal favorite is always and will always be an acai bowl. Nothing substitutes mm. for an acai bowl in my mind. So, mm. you know, acai berries with some frozen banana mixed in with some other fruits on top and then some other fixings like, you know, you can put cocoa nibs or uh, some peanut powder in there. I go nuts for that stuff. Me too. I love an acai bowl for sure. And my favorite is the, know? we got to talk about the breakfast sunshine fruit bowl. Okay. It has dragon fruit. It has citrus it has kiwis it has some papaya some pineapple and with greens Chantel. okay so a big part of our program is eat especially as you're going out of that insulin resistant state like cyrus was saying you got to reduce your fat and also simultaneously increase your green and non-starchy vegetable content and that's going to help you stabilize your blood glucose and avoid those 180s 190s as you're becoming more insulin sensitive yeah. i have an idea yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <clears throat> okay. I have nice. So, so you mentioned earlier that uh, you know that you're consuming too too high fat in your diet, and um, that you could probably reduce your fat intake. What if we were to do? Let let, let let's challenge you mm -hmm. to eat a truly low fat diet for the next thirty days. And the reason I would want to do that is because uh, I want you to feel what it feels like when you lower your fat intake to between ten and fifteen percent. And you, you will likely feel the difference and you will see the difference. And usually the first week is like, you have to change a lot of the stuff that you're eating. The second week gets a little bit easier. The third week can sometimes become difficult, but usually by the time you hit the like 21 to 30 day marker, you're on cruise control and it makes a significant difference. So if you're up for it, Let's do a challenge where you go low fat for 30 days and then you can report back to your community and really teach people exactly what changes you made and how it made you feel. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I I definitely want to to talk about this will bring me to my next point about about the calories on how many calories cuz cuz at the end of the day you know, regardless whether I'm eating it in, in fat or whether I'm eating it in something else, I'm eating too many calories for myself right now. I've been under a lot of stress. I've been, you know, kind of, I've got some, some things going on, um, work-wise that I've just been massively, massively stressed. And so I'm just definitely eating my feelings a little bit, which is the one thing that I say not to do. Right. Sure, sure. Um, and so, <laughs> um, I want to talk about calories for just a second. If you are going to advise someone on, you know, the calorie intake that they should be taking, I want to talk about it for a guy and for a girl, what are your calorie recommendations of where they should kind of remain at? Okay. So actually the truth be told, in order to figure out what your actual uh, calorie requirements are, it, it, you have to take into account a number of things. You have to take into account number one, your sex, number two, your age, and then number three, your, uh, your athletic, your, what should I say? The amount of, um, exercise that you perform on a daily basis. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
So there's this thing called the Harris Benedict equation, which is basically an equation that you can use. It's on, on, it's on Google. Um, and you can use that equation and basically it will tell you what your, what's called your BMR, your basal metabolic rate is, which is the amount of calories required to just operate your body on a daily basis with zero exercise. So you can use that. Then you have to add in your activity due to, or your, your uh, calories due to activity. Plus, in addition to that, you also have to throw in what's called your thermic effect of food or your TEF. And that's the number of calories that it takes to actually digest the food that you're consuming. So it can become a really complex calculation. And as a result of that, your calorie requirements are going to be different than some, than another female who is the same age, the same height as you, um, but has a different energy expenditure. Right. So everybody has like a very unique sort of calorie requirement. Robbie's and mine are different than each other. Um, you know, and we're like not too far off in terms of our body weight and turn and height. We're both male, you know what I'm saying? So it, it's very, so it's hard us for range. us to give any Give us a range of what you would say, like, uh, you know, someone who is like a five, someone who's five, four female and say a five, 10 male, what would that range be for someone if you had to estimate? Okay. So if we're looking at like a five, four female, um, you know, ballpark, I would say somewhere on the order of like 1200 to 1400 calories per day. <clears throat> okay. And then what was the next one? Uh, like a five, 10 male. Okay. Five, 10 male, call it like average activity level. I would say something on the order of like 22 to 2400 calories. Okay. Yeah. And these are just ballpark guesses right here. Um, yeah. and again, so it's going to depend on a, a number of different things, but the beauty here is that when it comes to eating, like human beings were not really designed to have to use a meal tracker or to use chronometer or my fitness pal in order to figure out how many calories they're eating and weigh things and take photos and measure. It's too complicated. Mm -hmm. These are just like handy tools that enable us to like make, make some sense of the whole thing. But like, that's not the way human beings were designed. Like monkeys don't do that. Cats don't do that. Dogs don't do that. They just eat until they feel full and then they stop right. eating food, right? And that's one of the things that we find with eating a plant-based diet. And that's what a lot of the, the, the calorie density uh, research demonstrates is that when you eat foods that have a low calorie density, again, there's a very strong communication between your digestive system and your brain. And that communication highway between the two of them is a two-way signal becomes very strong. And as a result of that, when you're eating foods that have a low calorie density, AKA a lot of fiber and water, then your digestive system talks to your brain and literally tells your brain when to start eating food, when to stop eating food. And as a result of that, you will take on an appropriate number of calories without overeating. And it's just easier. Like Robbie was saying, it's easier to overeat when you're eating refined substances, when you're eating refined sugar, high fructose corn syrup, when you have oils in your diet, which is a refined liquid. Okay. When you're eating foods that come from packages and bottles and cans, it's much easier to overeat on calories than when you're eating real whole food, period, end of story. So if you want to get away from calorie counting, as I do, as Robbie does, like we haven't calorie counted in, I don't know, 20 years. If you want to get away from that game altogether and just live a normal, healthy life as a you know regular human being, then eating a plant-based diet is, a, is an avenue to getting you to, uh, to that destination. And Chantal, I will add, that is a key premise in this book is that we do not want people to have to count calories to reach their ideal body weight. We do not want to play that game. The only reason we use nutrition software at Mastering Diabetes is to help people living with insulin-dependent diabetes figure out how many 
grams of carbohydrate they're consuming, so they know how much insulin to inject, or to help people learn how much fat they're actually consuming. So use these tools to figure out, wow, I did not, I had no idea that just that handful of nuts provided me so many, it's like 15 grams of fat, like it's crazy. So um, that's important to note. But also for your experiment, you can use the recipes in our book. We have two 21 day meal plans in the book, over 30 recipes, and uh, you can have a lot of fun. Yeah. And these recipes really look amazing, guys. So you've got to check those out. I'm really excited myself to check them out. And and I agree with you. I'm not a fan of calorie counting, never have been. But I do think that doing it for a few days when someone goes, because I mean, I'm not joking you when I tell you we, you know, we have people emailing questions in all the time. And the number one thing they say is, well, I've tried everything. I've done this and now I've done this and now I've done that. And I'm only eating in a four hour window. I'm only doing this. I'm only doing, I mean, I can give you 14 different scenarios of this one's doing this, this one's doing that. And at the end of the day, I agree, you're just eating too much food and you're not realizing it because you might've been without even realizing it, you're having two cups of cashews, which is a lot of fat, which is a lot of calories. And at the end of the day, you're not really that full when you, when you had a, even one cup of cashews, you're, you know, you might be a little bit full, but you're not like, oh my gosh, I, I can't need another thing. So we are out of time, but this was wonderful. I really enjoyed my time with both of you. Tell listeners where they can find you and where they can follow you. Okay. So the best place to go, I think, like you said, is masteringdiabetes.org. Start there. We publish a new recipe every week. We have lots of articles. We have testimonials. It's a great place to go. And that's going to be your hub. Now, to get the book, you can get that everywhere books are sold. All right. So Amazon is the most common place, Barnes and Noble. We read our own audiobook. So that was really fun. It's on Audible, it's on Google Play. And we added in some extra updated science in that um, audiobook because it was recorded a little bit after the book was, you know, finally printed. And we also added some little you know, color commentary in the beginning of each chapter that talk about our thought process and writing the chapter and all that. So it was very fun. So the audiobook is great. And we're active on social media. So YouTube, check us out. Our channel is Mastering Diabetes. We're on Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. Just type in Mastering Diabetes and you'll find us. And we also have a podcast. So type in Mastering Diabetes into any podcast platform and you will find us on Spotify, iTunes, all those places. And um, if somebody's living with diabetes and you're looking for coaching, we provide that as well. And you can go to masteringdiabetes.org slash start, and you'll be able to talk to an enrollment specialist and see if we can help you out. I love that you read your own book. It's funny because I've written four books and I've I've put a couple of them on audiobook. And the, my first one I did is called Waste Away through Intermittent Fasting. And I did the first version and I, I did the rec- audio recording myself. And then I updated it. Like I, I added some different things that I thought were really important. And then I had someone else record it. And everyone always says they're like, man, the first version where you did it is so much better because, you know, you're you're passionate. You wrote it. So you're passionate about this. And then I did another one called one meal in a tasting. And I did, uh, 
that one I recorded myself and people that I think it really does make a difference when you record the book yourself. It just, it has a different flavor. It has that passion. And so I love that you guys recorded it yourself. Well, this has been my pleasure having you guys on and you guys stay tuned. We have another episode coming up in just a few, but bye for now. Hey guys, thanks for listening to today's podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, it would mean the world to us for you to leave a review on iTunes to get this podcast out to others that may have the same questions that you do. And as always, if you have a question that you want answered, email those to questions at chantelrayway.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.